is going on, true crime fans? I'm your host, Heath. And I'm your host, Daphne. And you're listening to Going West. Hello, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. We are almost into October, days away, and we have some very unique cases and episodes coming for you guys this month because October just feels like the time for it. It is the spooky season. It's our favorite season, actually. Yeah, so we're going to try to have a little fun with it if we can, obviously, while remaining very respectful. Um, But today we have a 1950s case for you guys. It is a very mysterious and eerie story out of Wisconsin around Halloween time. Yeah, we have not done a babysitter murder for you guys in a long time, but that's what we have for you guys today. It is very eerie when you get into the actual details. Absolutely. Also, if you're looking for more episodes, we just released a bonus episode on our Patreon and Apple Podcasts, or sorry, Apple subscriptions on Apple Podcasts, and that is the story of Britt Lapthorne. That's a crazy case about a backpacker from Australia that traveled to Croatia, um, and that case happened in 2008. That just came out. So if you want to check that out and almost 100 other bonus episodes that are full length and ad free that we have not covered on Going West, head on over to patreon.com slash going west podcast or just open up your Apple podcast app and hit subscribe. All right, guys, I don't think we have anything more for you. I think that was enough. I think that was enough. All right, guys, this is episode 344 of Going West. So let's get into it. When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In October of 1953, a 15-year-old girl went missing while babysitting in her Wisconsin neighborhood. A cursory search of the home revealed blood, making it obvious that she had been met with foul play. And it didn't take long for her to be linked to one of the country's most prolific serial killers. But was he actually involved, or was it another local? This is the story of Evelyn Hartley.
Evelyn Grace Hartley, better known as Evie among her family and friends, was born on November 21st, 1937 to parents Ethel and Richard Hartley. One of four, Evelyn grew up alongside two brothers named Thomas and Richard Jr. and a sister named Carolyn. But sadly, when Evelyn was just nine years old, her brother Richard Jr. fell ill of polio. So he was 18 years old, he had just graduated high school and immediately enlisted in the Navy, stationed in Bainbridge, Maryland, amidst the Korean War. And then he died just a few months later on September 5th, 1946. Three years after their tragic loss, the family relocated from Charleston, Illinois to La Crosse, Wisconsin, which is nestled along the Mississippi River just over the border of Minnesota. The family settled into their new community and instantly became members of the First Presbyterian Church there. And Evelyn herself worked both for the nursery and the church's youth program and also sang and played piano in the church choir. But she had a very athletic side as well. She enjoyed playing tennis, golfing, skiing, swimming, and hiking. So she was extremely active and had so much fun with all the different activities. In 1953, Evelyn was a junior at Central High School. And although her passion was science, she was also a member of the drama club. Peers described her as attractive, wholesome, and intelligent. And her principal remembered, quote, she was popular because she did things in the right way. Quiet and dependable, she was a diligent student and maintained a straight-A average. One classmate described her as quiet and pretty, and another said, quote, As I remember, she was so much better than most of us. You could talk very easily with her, and she was very bright. You thought she would be someone in the future. And her family claimed that she had been on a few dates throughout her young life, but she had never been in a steady relationship. On the evening of Saturday, October 24th, 1953, Evelyn had agreed to babysit for a colleague of her father's, Vigo Rasmussen. Evelyn's father, Richard, was a PhD and a biology professor at La Crosse State College, where Vigo was a physics professor. So that evening, there was this big football game that drew in the entire town, which Vigo wanted to attend that night. Reportedly, the Rasmussen's regular babysitter was also attending this football game, so Richard recommended his daughter to his work colleague, and that seems to kind of be how she got the job, but some sources do claim that Evelyn and the Rasmussen's babysitter were actually friends, and that she was the one who recommended Evelyn when she wanted to go to the game instead of caring for the Rasmussen's baby. Others have claimed that Evelyn had wanted to back out of babysitting that night because she needed to stay in and study, but that her mom just kind of encouraged her to uphold her commitment. And the great thing about babysitting, and with this baby in particular, is once the baby goes down, you can kind of do whatever you want. Exactly. She, she still had time to study here. But regardless of how it happened, Evelyn found herself at the Rasmussen's home on that fateful Saturday evening. Vigo's wife, Madeline, and their oldest daughter, seven-year-old Rosalyn, were headed to this game as well, leaving their youngest daughter, 20-month-old Janice, with Evelyn. Now, around 6 p.m. that evening, Vigo picked Evelyn up from her family's home on Johnson Street in Southeast La Crosse and drove her to their home on Heschler Drive, which is just five minutes away. Rosalyn remembers Evelyn arriving with a large bouquet of flowers for the family because that's just the thoughtful and kind person that she was. Between 6.30 p.m. and 6.45 p.m., 
Madeline and Vigo walked Evelyn through the instructions to care for Janice, who was about to go to bed for the evening. She was told to put Janice in her crib at 7 p.m., and then at 7.15 p.m., Evelyn was asked to go back into her room and cover her with a comforter, which was hanging over the end of the crib. Now, around 6.45 p.m., Madeline, Vigo, Rosalind, and a young neighbor friend of hers headed out for this game, leaving Evelyn and baby Janice alone. So Evelyn put the baby down for bed, waiting until she was asleep to go back in and put the blanket on her as instructed. And as she waited, she opened up the four or five textbooks that she had brought with her to study and finish up her homework. Like I said, she has pretty much the rest of the night to do her homework, which was what worked out so well about this gig or what was supposed to. So around 7 p.m., Evelyn's mom, Ethel, recalls having this urge to check on her daughter, but knowing that she was busy, refrained from doing so. While babysitting, Evelyn usually checked in periodically throughout the evening by calling home, and around 8.30 p.m., Evelyn had claimed that she would call her parents, but she didn't call. So Richard called the Rasmussen home to get in touch with Evelyn, but no one answered. Shortly after 9 p.m., so about 30 minutes later, he was starting to grow concerned. So Richard decided to just head over to the Rasmussen's in hopes of making sure that everything was okay with his daughter. And arriving around 9.30 p.m., so just over three hours after Evelyn had arrived, he rang the doorbell, but again, no answer. When Richard peered through the window, he could see lights on and hear music coming from the radio, but saw no sign of his daughter, nor any movement in the home. He knocked on the doors and windows, shouting to get his daughter's attention, but still, he saw no sign of her, but he could see her shoe discarded on the floor and her school book still open in the living room. And he could also see her coat and her purse, so it seemed obvious that she would be inside, so it didn't make sense why she wasn't coming to the door nor answering the phone. Like, something just seemed really off, even just from the outside of the house. So becoming more concerned about Evelyn's whereabouts, Richard circled the property, finding all the doors and windows locked, until he came upon one window to the basement that was not only unlocked, but open. The screen had been removed and was resting against the exterior of the home, and this window bordered a vacant lot and was conveniently situated near a stepladder, which the family had been using to repaint the house. When Richard climbed in, he spotted Evelyn's other shoe at the foot of the basement stairs. So that was another very obvious and abrupt red flag. When Richard reached the living room where Evelyn was apparently studying, he found signs of a struggle. Aside from her discarded shoe and books tossed aside, her glasses were shattered and dropped on the floor, and the throw rugs had been moved. When he checked Janice's room, he found her sound asleep alone in her crib with the comforter that Evelyn was planning to drape over her at 7.15 still hanging from the foot of her bed. So at this point, completely panic-stricken, Richard ran from the house to seek help from a neighbor. It was around 9.40 p.m. that Richard knocked on the door of the Rasmussen's across-the-street neighbor, whose name is Frank Linder, asking him to call the police. A call which was placed at 9.49 p.m. 
Rosalind remembers returning home from the game with her parents and witnessing absolute chaos descend upon their house. She said, quote, Lo and behold, our whole house was surrounded by police cars. My mom almost fainted. She jumped out of the car and shouted, Where's my baby? My baby! But the Rasmussens were told, It's not the baby, it's Evelyn. Rosalind, along with Evelyn's six-year-old sister Carolyn, were put to bed in an upstairs room while the Hartleys and the Rasmussens spoke with the police. The scene was more grim than Richard could comprehend. Police found blood in multiple locations, both inside and outside of the house. Rosalind remembered, quote, As long as I live, I will never forget coming home to that horrific scene. Blood everywhere, police everywhere, and the feeling of total fear and loss. Not only was it a turning point for the town, but for us as well. I was so scared. We were terrified. I was trying to make sense of it all. It was the first time that I'd ever seen adults cry. So 20 police officers along with the sheriff, multiple detectives, highway patrolmen, and members of the district attorney's office responded to the home to investigate. Signs of foul play riddled the scene, but none of them gave any indication of where Evelyn had gone. And based on that open window, police believed that someone, either an opportunistic passerby or someone who knew Evelyn would be there alone that night, took advantage of the accessible window and entered the home specifically to abduct and potentially assault Evelyn Hartley. And I gotta say, that's so scary thinking about that. She is locked in the house. She is, you know, supposedly very safe. She's watching this baby. She's studying. And little does she know before it happens that somebody is creeping through the basement window and sneaking up the stairs to attack her. For some reason, this scene or the picture that I have in my head is uh, a scene from Black Christmas where the yeah, lead... I, I hear you. You know what I'm talking about, where the lead is down in the basement and you can see like a person walking past the basement window. Yes. Very, very scary. Well, and also with that, the fact that her shoe was found at the bottom of the basement stairs, like it makes you wonder if anything happened in the basement. And I guess I'm just saying that because basements are so scary that it makes this whole scene all the more horrifying, knowing that part of it, part of the attack must have taken place there. But yeah, just a terrifying situation. And it's only gonna get worse. So three other windows in the basement had marks from someone trying to pry open the panes, meaning that this person not only got through one of the windows, but had tried to open others to get in. Ugh. So footprints from a men's size 11 sneaker were found in both the living room of the home and the dirt in the window well of the open basement window. And blood was found splattered both inside the house and also in the yard. A large puddle of blood had pooled on the floor beneath the basement window, leading investigators to believe that Evelyn had been injured and potentially fatally injured inside the house before being removed by her attacker or attackers, and again, through the basement. In the backyard, there were two more large blood stains, one about 18 inches wide, and then investigators also discovered a bloody handprint on the garage. Farther away from the Rasmussen's home in the yard of their neighbors, the Downer family, there was another large blood stain. So it appeared as if her abductor had been dropping Evelyn's bloodied body on the way out of the basement, leaving imprints along their route. 
Yeah, because you have to imagine this person is trying to haul a body out of a basement window. So yeah, that's going to be hard to do. So freaky. So fragments of her red corduroy pants were recovered nearby as well. And scent dogs were put to work right away. And they were actually able to track Evelyn's scent to a nearby intersection. And that was the street just north of the Rasmussen's home, which is Cooley Street. But it was there, unfortunately, that they lost her scent, which led investigators, as well as Evelyn's family, to believe that she was put into a car and transported elsewhere. By early Sunday morning, when light dawned on the gruesome scene, Richard claims he knew his daughter was gone. The following day, Ethel walked through the crime scene herself and came to the same conclusion. She told the local paper quietly, quote, We know she isn't alive now. The grim and tragic end to one of the community's most promising young members really weighed heavily on everyone in lacrosse. One of the Hartley's neighbors said, quote, You expect this to happen in New York or Chicago or St. Louis, not in lacrosse. The city of about 50,000 people really rallied behind her family and were determined to find who had taken Evelyn. And donations also poured in from just very concerned citizens and businesses all over Wisconsin. With very few leads and very puzzling evidence here, police begged anyone who believed that they had seen or heard something to come forward. And this led to a tip from a neighbor of the Rasmussen's who said that they heard screaming coming from the house at 7 p.m. on the evening of Saturday, October 24th, which would have been less than an hour after she arrived. Now, thinking that it was just children playing, they neglected to report it or investigate it further. And because of the narrow window of time between when Madeline, Vigo, and the children left, which was around 6.45 p.m., and when Evelyn was supposed to cover up the baby with her blanket, which was at 7.15 p.m., police believed that she was abducted at 7 p.m., which is so crazy to think about because they had left 15 minutes earlier. It's a tiny window. And that makes you believe that somebody had been watching the home, maybe waiting for the adults to leave so that they could finally enter in through that basement window. Oh, God, you're so right. Freaky. So, and this would also align with when neighbors heard screaming, of course. So, another neighbor claimed that he spotted two men walking with a girl in between them, stumbling slightly. And this was in the vicinity of the Rasmussen's house around 7.15 p.m., which would definitely make sense for the timeline here. Now, later, when he was in his vehicle, this neighbor, he claimed that he spotted this trio again. But this time, the men were seated upright with one of them driving the car, and the girl was apparently slumped over next to the other man in the back seat. This tip became a crucial piece of evidence in the investigation, and it's still being discussed today as a possible theory. Now, let's talk about the car for a second. So, the car was light green in color and had two-tone panels on its sides. This neighbor believed that it was either a 1941 or a 1942 Buick and claims that he saw it circling the neighborhood around 8 p.m. and that it was driving so quickly that he almost collided with it. And remember, this case takes place in 1953, so, you know, the car is around 10 years old. Now, the car was apparently headed west, which would lead them across the Mississippi River and into Minnesota. The neighbor who reported this tip has now been identified as Ed Hofer, 
though he went unnamed in the media for like 50 years, and I'm assuming it's probably because he wanted to keep his identity safe from loads of speculation. Eugene Downer, who's the owner of the home neighboring the Rasmussens, where bloodstains were also found, claimed that his wife also saw this suspicious green vehicle as well. Evelyn's disappearance was the most thorough search in the history of lacrosse and one of the most intense in Wisconsin's history because over a thousand people gathered to search for Evelyn alongside the police and the Hartleys just walking the neighborhood and combing the landscape for any sign of her. And a thousand people is quite a bit of people, you know, when the population's only 50,000 in the entire town. Oh yeah, that's huge. And volunteers also just transcended age and background. It was like all types of people were coming out. The entire community just wanted to find answers for the family and also just catch whoever did this and make sure that they're not going to do it to anybody else and prey on any other young women in the neighborhood. And also... A local brewing company and the local power company even chartered planes to search the area. And aerial searches encompassing a 50-mile or 80-kilometer radius were conducted just looking for any sign of her. So they were really putting in the work. Local Boy Scout troops and the National Guard also came to assist, as well as students from La Crosse State College, where Richard and Vigo were professors, and peers of Evelyn's from Central High School. Boats sailed up and down the banks of the Mississippi in case she had been discarded there, and farmers were asked to walk the perimeters of their properties and keep an eye out for any articles of clothing that may have been discarded or maybe even like disturbed dirt that may be concealing a fresh grave. Radio and newspaper updates were frequent as the whole city was gripped by the appalling crime. By the end of the day on Sunday, a few articles were recovered and turned in by hikers, and that included a knife still in its sheath, a woman's slipper, a handkerchief, and a flashlight. However, none of these were confirmed to be linked to Evelyn nor her captors. Then, on October 30th, 1953, so six days after her disappearance, searchers came across even more potential evidence. But this time, it seemed plausible that it could be linked to Evelyn's disappearance. Sometimes Daphne and I are doing research for Going West, and we subscribe to different newspapers from all around the country, and then we forget to unsubscribe. But that's exactly why we love Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. You'll be able to see all of your subscriptions in one place, and if you see something you don't like, Rocket Money can help you cancel it in just a few taps. It is seriously that easy. And that's why Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things that you don't use. 
Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash going west. That's rocketmoney.com slash going west. Rocketmoney.com slash going west. As true crime listeners, you're aware of the dangers out there in the world. So why not keep your home as safe and secure as possible? Daphne and I do this by using Simply Safe. For award-winning security and peace of mind wherever your summer plans take you. When we get ready for our summer trips this year, I will feel so much better about leaving the house knowing that Simply Safe has our back, just freeing me from my constant anxieties. And also something I love is that their system blankets your entire home in protection from break-ins to fires to floods. And with indoor and outdoor cameras to choose from, you will feel safe any time of day or night. And Simply Safe is backed by 24-7 professional monitoring agents to help stop crimes in real time. Which is part of why they were named the best home security system of 2024. Simply Safe has given us and so many listeners real peace of mind, and we want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off of any new Simply Safe system. With fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com slash going west. There's no safe like Simply Safe. <laughs> Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything that you need to sell in person. I absolutely love Shopify. I launched my coffee company, Elders Coffee, with Shopify in December, and it has been such an amazing process. I seriously could not recommend Shopify more. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. And they really do. So what are you waiting for? Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash going west, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash going west to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash going west. We know you guys love a good mystery, especially one with twists and turns. Am I right? This is why you guys are going to love June's journey. Step into the role of June Parker while she tries to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder in the roaring 1920s. In this hidden object mystery game, put your detective skills to the test. While you're on this quest to uncover a scandalous hidden family secret, you can customize your very own luxurious estate island and let your imagination run wild. Daphne and I actually love to play this game together because you can chat with and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. It is truly so much fun. You guys are going to love it. So what do you think? Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Heath and I are major sufferers of seasonal allergies. They are the worst. It can even be difficult to host this show when our noses are all clogged up. We have tried brand after brand, but luckily, for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. 
And big shout out to Claritin for supporting this show and providing us with samples. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so that you can breathe better. I feel like I sneeze all day long. I always have an itchy face. But now I can actually go outside in the grass and not have a sneeze attack or be stuffed up thanks to Claritin D. Are you ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so that you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Before that quick break, Daphne was telling us that some of the searchers had found some items, but police did not think that they were linked to Evelyn's disappearance. But then they had found a few things that they were sure were linked to Evelyn. So near an underpass on Highway 14, which ran through town, as well as southwest down to Illinois and west towards Minnesota, searchers recovered a pair of underwear and a bra that may have belonged to Evelyn. They were both stained with blood, though testing limitations at the time did not allow them to confirm whether or not it was actually Evelyn's blood. Then, about four miles or six kilometers down the same highway, a pair of men's pants were found, also blood-stained. But the most clear piece of potential evidence came in the form of shoes that investigators believed that the perpetrator was wearing that night. Similar to the footprints left in the Rasmussen's home and in the dirt of their window well in the basement window, the shoes were size 11 and had what police described as a suction cup pattern matching the footprints left behind at the scene. The shoes were also recovered along Highway 14, outside of a small town called Coon Valley, about half an hour southeast of La Crosse. And like all the other items, the shoes were splattered with blood. Which is not something you come across often anyway, is an article of clothing splattered in blood. So I feel like all of these are a pretty good bet, but like you said, particularly these shoes. Absolutely. And the sneakers were BF Goodrich brand with a rubber sole by the Hood Rubber Company, which had been bought out by BF Goodrich. And the model was called the Mogul, which was designed as activewear and specifically marketed as gym and athletic shoes. They also kind of resemble like high-top Converse sneakers of today. So from what police could ascertain by examining these shoes, they believe that the wearer operated heavy machinery and drove a motorcycle. A specific pattern of wear on the shoes resembled pedals of a Whizzer brand motorbike. And inside the shoe, they recovered a single human hair, which they believe belonged to a person of African-American descent. Now, based on the condition of the shoes, Police also surmised that the shoes had been worn by two different men and that one of the men's feet were too large for them. And I, I wonder how they kind of determined that, maybe because the, the toe area was popping up or something. Police announced, quote, We know definitely that the shoes were placed there a short time before they were found. We consider them to be the most important piece of evidence that we have. In the vicinity of the sneakers, investigators also recovered a worn denim jacket, 
which like every other item, sported bloodstains. And this jacket was fashioned with metal buttons, one of which was missing. In addition to the blood, paint flecked on the back of the jacket. The bottom few inches had been cut off and rehemmed with white thread, and beneath the armpits was abnormal deterioration of the fabric, leading police to believe that the wearer possibly worked in a job that might require him to sport a safety harness, such as a construction worker. And due to smears in the pools of blood back at the Rasmussen house, police believe that Evelyn's kidnapper was wearing this jacket at the time of her abduction and likely murder. However, when comparing the shoes with the jacket, the jacket appeared disproportionately smaller than the shoes, which led police to the conclusion that there were, as witnesses alleged, two kidnappers. Police presented the jacket and shoes to dozens of communities in the area, but could not determine their owners. Investigators even canvassed some graveyards and dug up a few of the fresher graves just to rule out the possibility that Evelyn had been concealed in the soft dirt of a new burial. So running out of avenues to pursue, Lacrosse police implemented some new tactics in their desperate attempt to find Evelyn. Police set up a vehicle inspection program for locals to drive through and have their car checked out by law enforcement. And when no traces of blood were found, they were given a sticker to be displayed on their bumper that read, My car is okay. Authorities also instructed gas station attendants to be on the lookout for vehicles that appeared to be suspicious, as well as cars without an okay sticker, and to report the license plate of any driver who refused the search. And this is such a wild thing to do. I mean, it's amazing. They are really putting in effort and trying, but still just months continue to pass and none of their great efforts were bringing any answers. So in May of 1954, eight months after Evelyn's disappearance, police announced mandatory lie detector testing. They mostly focused on male high school students, assuming that her captors had been young men and that one of their peers would know them or at least know of them. Law enforcement sought to test around 2,000 students but quit after about 300 due to the controversy of the teens being forced to participate. But still, the police captain estimated that they questioned about 3,500 people in regards to Evelyn's disappearance. But the sad thing here is that, as police feared, with no tangible leads, Evelyn's case had turned cold. Years passed without news on the matter, but then, in 1957, the case received renewed attention when the arrest of a depraved serial killer brought forth a surprising connection to lacrosse. And some of you guys probably know who this person is. When the owner of a hardware store vanished, leaving bloodstains on the floor. Local police traced her whereabouts back to her most recent customer, whose name was Ed Gein. Born in 1906 in La Crosse, Wisconsin, Ed was living about two hours away in Plainfield at the time of the murder. His victim, Bernice Warden, disappeared on November 16, 1957, and when investigators came by Ed's house suspecting his involvement, they found Bernice's headless body strung up in his shed like a hunting trophy. And they were able to trace another area disappearance back to him as well. 
that of a local bar owner named Mary Hogan, who he killed in 1954. But the most horrifying discovery of all, aside from the two women that he was found to have murdered, were the body parts of nearly a dozen other corpses used as decorations around his home. Human skin stretched and treated like leather, adorned chairs, lampshades, a wastebasket, and clothing. Skulls donned his bedposts and functioned as bowls in his kitchen. Many other body parts were being saved or squirreled away for later, including his second victim's entire head. Though there were only two confirmed victims, aside from the graves that he had desecrated, law enforcement believed that he could be responsible for as many as seven more. Now, the connection to Evelyn was pretty theoretical, but entirely possible. Ed also hailed from La Crosse, Wisconsin, and on the night that Evelyn vanished, he was believed to have been visiting relatives in that area. However, this was kind of a long shot because his two victims were women in their 50s, both of whom he shot and killed pretty quickly. Neither Evelyn's profile nor the details of her abduction really aligned with Ed's MO. Although law enforcement did search his property for her remains, they came up empty-handed and two lie detector tests came out in Ed's favor. But crazy that they questioned him about her and made him aware of her case at all, and just that this was a thought, but yeah, it, it doesn't seem to connect at all. And for those of you who don't know, Ed Gein's case was actually the, um, the inspiration for Texas Chainsaw Massacre, so that's how that... And so many other movies and shows, like, yeah. it, I mean, he did some seriously disturbing things that you really don't see in many other cases at all. Like he took, he took things to a like hellish degree. And that's why a lot of movies were kind of based on his case. Exactly. But you know, given all of this, police ultimately decided that the connection was unlikely and they ruled him out as a suspect. So Ed was uh, eventually legally declared insane, and he died in a psychiatric hospital in 1984. Good riddance. Yes. Much later, in 2004, so 51 years after Evelyn's death, an unexpectedly promising lead came from a surprising source, a recorded conversation from decades prior that had gone unnoticed on a tape recorder. This part is absolutely insane to me. It's so crazy. So basically a man named Mel Williams stumbled upon this eerie confession when he was revisiting a tape from a recording that he made at a Wisconsin bar in 1969. So 16 years after Evelyn disappeared. The story about why Mel was recording kind of differs depending on the source. Like one source says he was recording a band who was playing there that evening. And then another claims that he was just simply enthralled by the story that the men were telling and he wanted to hear more. And that kind of seems to be more of Mel's recollection. And he later said, quote, this man was quite a character buying booze for a bunch of alcoholic friends. I wanted him on tape for the memory. But regardless of the reason, Mel spent that evening in a bar called The Raven in Lafarge, Wisconsin, which is about an hour southeast of La Crosse. Mel overheard these two men discussing their involvement, along with another of their friends, in the abduction and murder of Evelyn Hartley. So one of the two men in the recording has remained officially unnamed, but locals have many theories about who he is. 
whereas the other man who can be heard on the recording is Clyde Peterson, who was 22 at the time of Evelyn's disappearance. The men also implicate a third man, Jack Galtair, who was 24 at the time. So after discovering this eerie conversation that he happened to capture on tape, Mel came forward and brought the tape into investigators, which obviously caused a giant stir in the community and confirmed many longtime rumors in the Lafarge area about who had been involved. Mel said in an interview, quote, anybody can make up a story, but there's got to be something to this. Why would the story come to this town? Why does everybody in Lafarge have a story about this? I do know they were capable of it. So according to these men, they transported Evelyn by car from the Rasmussen's house in La Crosse to a home in Lafarge, Wisconsin. Jack was apparently the person who officially ended Evelyn's life, and the men then buried her just south of Lafarge. Mel remembers one of the men asking him to shut off the tape, and he obviously forgot about it, writing off the story as nothing more than that of a colorful local. He didn't think twice about it until he stumbled upon it again 35 years later. So it's possible that the three men knew of Evelyn prior to her kidnapping and targeted her specifically. High school students in La Crosse were known to head down to Lafarge to go to parties, and the three adult men believed to be involved in her disappearance hung around these teenage parties. But sadly, all three of the men suspected of involvement in Evelyn's murder are now deceased. Clyde Peterson died of suspicious circumstances in 1974 and was discovered in an alley in Lafarge. His death was thought to be a heart attack, but nobody actually knows. Now, Jack Galtair took his own life on Christmas Day in 1967, two years before Mel recorded the conversation at the bar, and possibly because he had some guilt. Definitely, that, that would make sense. And just uh, for anybody that's confused about that, Jack was not one of the ones at the bar. They were just talking about him. So that means that he was dead when that story was told and recorded. And when I said that he was probably racked with guilt, actually his friend, Clyde Peterson, believed this as well. Clyde and Jack even had a history with crimes of this nature, having kidnapped a 15-year-old girl just two years before Evelyn's disappearance. So where is Evelyn Hartley? According to the men's story, she was buried along the Kickapoo River, which has flooded many times since then, so it's likely that her remains, if they were there, have probably since been washed away. I think it, it always feels credible when, I mean, we really see this in a lot of cases where somebody will be bragging about their crimes. And a lot of times, weirdly, it happens in bars. Like there are so many different uh, stories popping up in my head where somebody has been bragging about what they did in a bar to somebody. I don't know if it's just like they're drunk and they're just reminiscing on the horrible shit they've done. I think that's probably the case. You know, you get a little bit of liquid encouragement. You think you're a tough guy because you're drunk. And then you start just kind of word vomiting out your crime. But it's just so dumb. Like what an, an irresponsible thing to do. I mean, luckily they do it because a lot of times this is what this is what solves cases is when people just can't shut up about it, you know? Absolutely. And I would say probably like 50% of the time, um, the person who's, you know, bragging about killing someone is actually the killer. But sometimes, unfortunately, there's just people with big mouths and they just, they want to look cool around their friends and they say stupid shit. So 
But know, I do I do think it's interesting though. Like police already had suspected that it was a young man or young men who did this as they were. Um, you know, they're in the area. They co- have committed other crimes. They could have met Evelyn at some point. So even though there isn't some concrete major connection that we know of, like it's not like, oh, we know that Evelyn knew these guys. You know, it's not, there's nothing like that. Right. But still, it's pretty weird. And it just really makes you wonder. So though the Hartleys bore the brunt of the pain from the tragic loss, the Rasmussen family also suffered. Shortly after Evelyn's disappearance, Vigo moved his family out of their home on Heschler Drive, which he had built from the ground up actually, into a new house in a different part of town. He installed bars on the windows and became intensely protective over his wife and daughters. Rosalind, his daughter, remembered, quote, My dad almost had a total nervous breakdown. It almost drove him over the edge. It was a very hard and scary time. Janice herself didn't even know about the violent abduction that she survived until she read about it in her local paper when she was older. As the girls grew into teenagers, Vigo forbade them from babysitting. She said it affected him for the rest of his life, recalling, quote, He was really hard on me, but I know a lot of it was because he was nervous and fearful. I felt really kind of lost in it all and really kind of overlooked. I don't recall ever getting any kind of help. I was at a very impressionable age. Madeline Rasmussen passed away in 1990 and Vigo followed in 1997. Rosalind said sadly, quote, it haunted them for the rest of their lives. But she says she is forever grateful to Evelyn for her sacrifice, saying, quote, I kind of feel like now Evelyn is kind of an angel. What a martyr she was. She gave up her life to protect my baby sister. After years of staying in La Crosse, wondering what happened to their daughter, Evelyn's parents relocated to Oregon. They said later that they no longer cared to read speculation about her murder. Evelyn's father, Richard, passed away in 1986, and her mother, Ethel, died in 2002, which means she passed just two years before uh, that tape surfaced. Her brother Thomas was a celebrated botanist and worked all over the world, including stints at Harvard and in Papua New Guinea and the South Pacific. After receiving a job offer in Australia, Thomas relocated to Canberra, where he lived until his death. Evelyn's last remaining sibling, Carolyn, lives in Oregon now. And if Evelyn were alive today, she would be turning 85 years old this October. Evelyn Hartley was five feet, seven inches tall and weighed about 125 pounds at the time of her disappearance. On the evening of her abduction, she was wearing a white blouse with pearl buttons, red corduroy jeans and white bobby socks. And then obviously, as you guys know, her shoes were recovered at the scene. She had brown hair and blue eyes. If you have any information about the disappearance of Evelyn Hartley, please call the La Crosse Crime Stoppers at 608-784-8477. 
Thank you so much, everybody, for listening to this episode of Going West. Yes, thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. And on Tuesday, we'll have an all-new case for you guys to dive into. I just can't believe that with all the work and manpower that was poured into the search for Evelyn, that they just found those few articles of clothing, which obviously were important. It felt like those were connected to the case, but that didn't really get them anywhere anyway. Like, it's just crazy to me that this case is still such a mystery after all this time and work. Yeah, and I just really hope that there's some sort of evidence that's still being preserved so that maybe one day genealogy testing can actually prove who was responsible for taking Evelyn's life. Absolutely. So we will wait and see. Thank you guys so much for tuning into this episode. Um, And we'll see you next week. Yeah, we will see you on Tuesday. Tuesday. All right, guys. So for everybody out there in the world, don't be a stranger. kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. Exploreminnesota.com slash live.